Very thankful for that. It's certainly part of God's mercy that we are here. I'm going to move that a little bit out of the way. That we are here uh, tonight. Um, just so you know, uh, we will actually be in Hamilton the rest of the semester except for one night, which is March 18th, and we'll be in Haynes 100. If you're like a day planner person, like, go ahead and put that on your day planner. Uh, <laughs> Uh, also, bonus, March 18th, uh, a certain Will Nettleton will be the preacher that night. The prodigal son returns. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm excited about that. I know you're excited about that. Uh, I love Will Nettleton, um, and so I highly recommend uh, that you come, and I'm not sure what he's speaking on. He asked me if I just wanted him to uh, speak on, like, Seven Steps to Making Your Body a Temple, his workout plan. Uh, I mean, apparently, he's got some firm abs. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see, though. <laughs> so that's March 18th. That's Haynes 100. Uh, we're excited about that. I know I, know I am. I hope you all are, too. Um, so this semester, we've been going through Acts. Uh, and if you don't know, Acts is the book of history that the apostles wrote in response to Jesus' gospel. And what we're concerned with this semester is, okay, if Jesus is who he says that he is, and if he's done these things that the Bible says that he's done, how should we live our lives? What is the story that we live out of? And what makes sense uh, with our story? What makes sense with that story? And Acts is really here to guide us uh, along that way. I'll put this right here. Don't fall. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so tonight we're talking some about perseverance. We're talking about perseverance. You know, I think a lot of times it's not a bad question to ask ourselves, like, what is God's will for my life? Or what would God have me to do in this circumstance or that circumstance? But the way that we can often answer that is, you know, if God opens a door for me to, say, lead a mission trip or lead a Bible study, or if it opens a door for me to embrace a group of people that are not being embraced by Christians on campus, then I will take that as a sign of what I'm supposed to do. But generally, life is not a series of open doors. And sometimes God doesn't open a door. It's just the fact of the way it is. Sometimes what God does is he shows you a door and you just have to go and kick it down. And to follow God where he wants you to go sometimes means that you have to persevere in just putting your head down and running into that door. Like over and over and over again. But that is typically the, more of the experience of the Christian life than I'm going to prayerfully ask, where are these open doors? I'm going to walk through open door after open door after open door, and we're going to kind of make it through this thing. You know, recently I was reading uh, an article online about a Christian missionary uh, who's a really phenomenal woman. She was a missionary at the start of the 20th century. Her name was Gladys, I think I'm saying this last word right, Aylward, A-Y-L-W-A-R-D. Aylward, uh, Gladys Aylward, and all the description I read of her was that she was like short, like dark hair, and had kind of a Cockney accent. So, like as I read about her, I was thinking like Daisy from Downton Abbey goes to become a missionary. <laughs> uh, and if you know anything about her, she when she was 26, she goes to revival. She hears a preacher saying like, "Who is going to go and serve God?" Gladys decides. There are many ways to serve God. Gladys decides that for her, the way she will serve is to go and be a missionary in China. The problem is, though, that she's like 
working class British person from the start of the 20th century, like really like Daisy in a lot of ways, she's not very wealthy or well off at all. She doesn't have money to go on like a uh, passenger steamship like around Africa and up through Asia. What she does is she gets on a, she crosses the English Channel, gets on a train in France, and then takes that train from France to Moscow, and then takes the Trans-Siberian Railroad from Russia to China. And this is before there's email or cell phones. This is before people speak English like widely through the world. Uh, she's by herself traveling. She knows no one, speaks no English or no, no Chinese at all. And she gets to China, and like it turns out that while she's gone there, like Russia and China have been fighting this kind of like underground war. So there's a lot of like crazy stuff going on. She gets there, she speaks no Chinese, and she meets up with this older missionary woman who said, you know, I'm I'm kind of on my way out. I would love to meet with you and help you uh, become a missionary in sort of my stead. And so it seems like she's kind of got it made. But that missionary lady like falls down. She's older. She falls down. She's hurt, and she dies a few days later. So Gladys is by herself in China, the only Western person for like hundreds of miles around her. Doesn't speak any Chinese. And what does she do? She starts a business. She starts an inn. And over the years, that inn becomes an orphanage, and eventually she, she has over 100 kids with her. And when World War II breaks out and the Japanese invade China, people advise her, you know, you should flee, you should go somewhere else with these orphans. And these are her words, Christians don't retreat. Like, she stays as long as she can, and finally the Japanese army gets to the point where people are, like, pulling her and the kids, like, up into the mountains. So she crosses the mountains with 100 orphans, makes it through the mountains, and then crosses the Yellow River, which is the largest river in China, and then collapses on the other side from typhoid fever. But she got the orphans across. When I read Gladys' story, I don't get the impression that she was a lady who was looking for open doors. I get the impression she's a lady who perseveres. And oftentimes, what the Bible calls us to is perseverance. And it shows us examples like this because this is typically the Christian life. Before we start reading tonight... You can see this if you have your Bibles. It's Acts chapter 5. Um, at this point in Acts, the apostles have been warned by the authorities, don't preach and teach in the name of Jesus. This Christian movement has kind of got going. But the apostles have continued to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. They're the apostles. So they get arrested, they're beaten, they're imprisoned, they're released by miracle. And what's the first thing they do? As soon as they're out of prison, they go back to the temple, and they start to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. The very thing they've been warned not to do. And they encounter a lot of opposition to do what's right. They get beaten, but they persevere. And God's hand doesn't remove his people from hardship and danger. Oftentimes, he uses those things to make us like himself, and to make our stories like his story. And this can be hard for us to wrap our minds around But the message of Acts is that God's message, the good news of what Jesus has done in history, will go out. And no matter the opposition, no matter what happens, that will go out into the world. And that through it all, God's people will persevere because God loves them and cares for them and will persevere with them. So tonight we're going to look at three things that we need in order to persevere in mission. The pattern of mission, the character of mission, and the fuel for mission. Pattern, character, and fuel for mission. So let's read Acts 5.27 and see what God has to say for us tonight. 
And when they had brought them, they as the, the council, them as the apostles, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned him, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let me pray for us here. Father, you are so good to your people. God, you are good in that the things that you require of us, you give. You give faith, you give grace. Lord, you give us love if you ask for it, or if we ask for it. Lord, you give us understanding and wisdom if we ask for it. And Lord, now we approach you with confidence that you give the things that you've promised. Lord, and so we pray that you would give us understanding in this passage. Lord, that you would give us love in this passage and wisdom through it. God, that you would help us to, per to persevere. And not just to persevere in some random active mission, not to persevere in some moralistic crusade, but Lord, to persevere in you, and in knowing you, and in following your son Jesus. For he is love, and he is our understanding, he is our wisdom, and Lord, would you give us him tonight. In your sister, we pray. Amen. You know, a good way to test, what is, what are the things that have captured my heart? What am I truly in allegiance to? Like, what, what the Bible calls your idols? A good way to test those is to really ask yourself two questions. What would make someone my enemy? And what would I do in order to keep people from being my enemies? Right? Like, what would somebody have to threaten? What would somebody have to take away from me in order for me to say, like, we are past not being friends. Like, from now on, me and this person are going to butt heads, and when they open their mouth, I'm going to open my mouth, and we are not going to have pleasant words with one another. But the reverse of that is, like, Okay, what would it take to just make you just roll over on your back, feed in the air like a dog, and just say, like, don't take this from me. Like, I will do anything for your approval. I'll do anything for you to check off, like, my life. Anything to be invited into the clique. Anything for you to, like, laugh at my jokes. You know, as we read this passage, I get the impression that the apostles have started to move past both those places. They don't count the people who are beating them here as their enemies. I mean, they are getting beat. Like, people, like, other accounts of what this is like said that people died from this sort of beating. But the apostles don't count them as their enemies. Instead, they're rejoicing. But on the other hand, the apostles aren't in a place where 
They will do anything to make it look as though they are on, this pe- on these people's side. They've been warned and warned and warned some more that, you know, if you continue to preach in the name of Jesus, then we will do what we can to silence you. And that is going to get violent. The apostles are not here trying to, like, get these guys back or cause trouble, but they can't help but doing so. And why is that? Look at verse 29 here. But Peter and the other apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. What the apostles are saying here is that if all of this Jesus stuff is true, then we have to be prepared to follow God and what he has said in the Bible more than we follow the opinions of other people, more than we seek other people's approval. And oftentimes the consequences for following Jesus are not always fun. You know, I mean, with the Christian life, yes, comes joy, it comes a certainty of salvation, the certainty of being with God's people, being loved by them. But Christians also follow a God that did the right thing and got crucified for it. And Jesus very bluntly says to his apostles at some point, like, no servant is greater than their master. If they've done this sort of thing to me, then they will do it to you as well. They will do it to you as well. You know, what are some of the things that keep us from engaging in this sort of perseverance or in this sort of mission? For me, as I think about it, I think what other people will say about me can oftentimes feel as though more important than what God says about me. And that God loves you too much for you to live to be cool or for you to live to be other people's savior. And to be so much of the Christian life is God breaking us of the idea that if I am only this cool, if I am only this well accepted, then I will have my stuff together. Then I will be a complete person or a whole person. And there's a part of you that hates that. That hates the idea that we would have to give up that idea. Because I would do anything to be cool. I mean, I'm still, in many ways, middle school Simon, you know? (laughs) Give anything for that at times. I'd do anything at times to be someone's savior. Because then I wouldn't need a savior myself. I mean, I've got my stuff together. But God loves you too much to live without a savior. And he loves the people in your life too much for them to make the mistake of thinking that you're their savior. You know? If they could just wrap their life around you, they could wrap their life around your approval and what you've said about them, your wisdom, your advice, that would not be good for them. God loves them too much for that. You know, I think at times um, it can feel like people's word is stronger than God's word. And yet God's word for us is that I love you more than all these other people have loved you. I've given myself to you in ways that other people can't give to you. If I've spoken these things over you, if I said, you are my child, and I love you and I've died for you, then that is the truest thing about your existence and about who you are. And that's the thing we have to bank on. I know at times that here at Carolina, it can sometimes feel, if you're a Christian, you're kind of caught between two opposing sides. Like, you can feel the pressure from a very strongly pluralistic environment to be completely accepting of all lifestyles, but not to be honest about the gospel, not to be honest about what the Bible says about how people are created or how people are made to live. But on the other hand, you can feel the pressure at times from the sort of Christian subculture to be honest about those things, but not to be very loving. You know, that if you were to hang out with those people, the folks who would never darken the doors of a campus ministry or of a church, then in some way you betrayed us, or there's kind of this subtle guilt trip, like, you shouldn't be spending your time with them, you should be spending your time in more Bible studies. You should be spending your time being more involved. 
What I would rather have for you is to like come to RUF, do a Bible study, or spend some time with Christian friends, and go and love people who don't know the Lord. Like go and spend time with them. But it can feel at times as though we're caught between these two poles. And that can be a hard place to be. Because I think in the end it breeds this sort of apathy. An apathy either towards the grace and truth on offering the gospel. That, you know, the things that God has said, the things that God has God has done is not as important as these people here. Or an apathy towards those people out there that I'm going to be loyal to God and His Word, but I'm not going to love my neighbor. I'm not going to love these people over here. And that just is a breeds apathy in our hearts. The apostles don't have that. The apostles are saying very hard things to people who are not Christians, who don't want them to become Christians, who have no interest in being Christians, and yet they're going out and they're doing it in a missional way. What do we need to do something like that? I think what we need is love. Love that overcomes our apathy as well as our pressure to conform. What we need is love great enough for you to feel like it's okay if I'm a little bit of a weirdo in order to care for people and show them that they're not a project, in order to care for people and show them that I don't have like a band-aid to stick over their, their wounds and the hurts in their life. You need love great enough to follow God even when the people around you are standing against you in that. You know, the shape of the apostles' life is both grace and truth. They love these people. These guys aren't their enemies. They're not. And yet they're saying really, really true things here. Really true things. And that needs to be the shape of our own life as well. Look also here at the example of Gamaliel, the Pharisee. You know, here's someone who is not on the side of Christians. I mean, he's a very well-respected Jewish teacher Josephus wrote about him. I mean, he's an important guy in history. And he's here and he's saying, you know, like, wait and see about these guys. We've seen this kind of thing before. Somebody rises up. Somebody gathers some followers. That person is killed. Those followers disperse back into the crowd. Everybody hates the Romans. We get it. This sort of thing happens all the time. And if this is something that people are doing, that some guy has made up, then it's not going to go anywhere. So we don't have to really worry about it. But if it's not, if it's started by God, then we can't really stand against them. I mean, Gamaliel knows his Old Testament, right? Like, he's following a God who liberated Israel out of, the, out of Egypt. Like, he knows that when God puts his mind to something, he's going to do it. And you know what? Gamaliel is right. If Christianity is something that 12 uneducated fishermen and one wild-eyed homeless preacher kind of cooked up together one night, then it can't succeed. It's not going anywhere. But if Christianity is true, and it is a work of God in the world, and it started with 12 people and one wild-eyed homeless preacher, but, it re- but that guy really was God. And he did the things the Bible says he did. And he said the things the Bible said he, did, he said. Then it's going to succeed. It's going to succeed. I mean, think about how hard it is for the apostles to be where they are right now. I mean, if you were a Jewish guy who grew up in Israel 2,000 years ago, to stand before that council is to stand and face the authorities that everyone in your life has always told you, these are the most educated people, these are the most well-respected people, these are the people who are the most powerful, and to tell them no. To tell them no. I mean, but the apostles' attitude here. It's like as if there are a bunch of paratroopers dropped behind enemy lines. Like, they're running up against all these folks, and they're saying, we've got them right where we want them. Like, this, give me my beating, 
All is going according to plan. This is good. Like, they expect this. Because this is the shape of what they saw their Savior do. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has called them to do. And if he is who he says that he is, then the plan will succeed. So what's the reason for this sort of perseverance? Or the reason for love in that perseverance? Look at verse 30 here. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior through repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You know, if the pattern that's set before Christians is they will follow Jesus and experience a life like his, then the apostles can be fortified by this hope. You know, they don't get weaker from their persecution. They actually become stronger for it. They rejoice in it. Because in spite of all that happens, they don't get angrier. They don't get bitter. They don't turn full of hate. They're filled with love. Why is that? Look at verse 31. God exalted him, that's Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Why is Jesus exalted as leader and savior? In order to offer salvation to Israel, the people that killed him. Like the guys who are standing here, they're called the leaders of Israel, the council of Israel. Jesus is a savior from what? From sin, from death, from judgment. But just as important for who? For the nice people? For the very moral people who are super open-minded? For Israel. Even for people who persecute him, kill him, kill his followers. You know, and that should give us hope. You know, if God wants to save those sorts of people, then who won't he save? You know, does God like sinners? He loves sinners. He saves sinners all the time. You know, if we had to get our stuff together and stop resisting God in order for him to work, then nobody would be sitting in this room. Nobody would be standing here preaching in this room. God works in spite of opposition. God saves the people that are opposed to him. God saves the people that murdered him. You know, the the apostles understand that as we approach the world and offer them the good news of who Jesus is, at the heart of that is saying, if God can forgive me, then he can forgive anybody. You know, look who's speaking here. It's Peter and the apostles. The religious authorities may have killed Jesus, but Peter and the apostles abandoned him and showed themselves as cowards and ran away in fear. You know, Christians don't start off on a high horse or on a pedestal. In fact, Christians believe that high horses and pedestals are very dangerous places to be. We understand that even though when acting as God's enemies, God has had compassion on us. And the center of the Christian world is God hung on a cross, praying for the very people who put him there. Because God hasn't counted those people as enemies, Christians can't count other people as their enemies either. You have no people who are your enemies. Not someone who is maybe like an antagonistic professor against Christianity. Not someone who wants to persecute Christians somewhere else in the world. Those people aren't your enemies. They're not. The weapons that we fight with are love and patience and goodness and kindness. And Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our enemies are not flesh and blood. They're the principles and the powers of this world. Those are the things that we fight against. And the way that we upturn those things is with love. Is with trusting God to work through His Holy Spirit. To move people's hearts. 
Like our expectation is that God is at work and that he loves our enemies more than we do. And he welcomes us to himself and loves us more than we love us because we were his enemies and yet he calls us his children. So if that's what the apostles have got, then how do we get that too? Like what's the fuel for this mission? You know, look at verse 42. And they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. These are people who are soaking themselves in the teachings, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. They're going everywhere. They're going to the temple where they're going to get a beaten. They're going from house to house. They're together too, aren't they? Like this isn't a bunch of lone rangers. This is a community of people, the apostles, who are part of a larger community. And there's incredible opposition to them. They're being locked up in prison by the very people they're trying to love. If they don't hold them as enemies, they aren't trying to seize the levers of power or start some sort of revolution in the streets. They're simply preaching and teaching the entire life of Jesus. And people's lives are being changed. Enemies are becoming friends. People who were distant from God and served idols are coming to know the true and living God. Because God is at work and he is at work through people believing that Jesus' love and truth is bigger than things like personal conflict or their need to be in charge, or their addictions. And they believe because they're brought to a place where they would hear the gospel and be part of a community where the gospel is lived out. You see, truth is more than doctrine. It's more than theology. It's more than learning a few scripture verses in your head. Though All those things are good. But to live honestly, to live truthfully in the world, means to live out your doctrine. It means to live out your Bible with people around you in a community. That is, those are the things through which God has promised to work. Through his people, through prayer, through his Bible. Like, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to love people out of a true, like, Christian love, then be in the places where God has promised to give love. And that's in a community of people who know the Lord and love him. You know, who say to themselves, like, yes, persecution is real. Yes, it's hard when people put you down. It's hard when you feel like people make you feel dumb because you're a Christian. It's hard when people make you feel dumb because you believe the Bible. And yet we know you, we love you, we know this is true. And truth is not a democracy where people kind of get together and decide what is true and what's not true. Truth is outside of people. Truth exists apart from what people agree on. Truth is a real thing that we can trust and lean on, and that thing is Jesus. He's a person. And that's the fuel for our mission. Along with this, um, unapologetically, I love a radio show called This American Life. So, so good. So, so good. Yes, Charlie. Um, and I was listening recently to one uh, from, I guess, last year. And it was about a guy from the Bronx. And he, he works for a, a phone company. And the story kind of picks up at the start of 2008. It's the presidential race. He's kind of been down and out, like halfway employed by this phone company. And the economic recession is kind of going on. And the guy went out and he's just kind of hanging out at a bar, drinking with his friends. And the presidential debates are going on. And it's Barack Obama versus John McCain. And the debates are on. And his friends are kind of watching the debate out of one eye and looking over him. And they kind of start to do a double take. And they realize, like, our friend looks just like Barack Obama. Like, just like Barack Obama. And the guy's like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't really see it. Like, I don't see it, guys. And then, like, they, they Google it, and they have a picture of Barack, and they, like, they can look at his own face, and he's like, 
All right, I see it. Uh, <laughs> like, they are like spitting image of one another, except this guy talks like he's from the Bronx. He has like a thick New York, Long Island accent. But when he closes his mouth and puts on a nice suit, like he looks like Barack Obama. And so like he sends out some uh, headshots. He starts doing some like some public and uh, public places and things like that. He's in Korean music videos. He starts going to like chip commercials, uh, celebrity impersonation jobs. At one point, he's in a rap video, and like not like a regular rap video, but one of those like epic twelve-minute videos where it's like halfway a movie but also halfway the song. Uh, it's like crazy. Like he would show up at Times Square or baseball games, and people would line up to get their picture taken with him. Mothers were handing him their babies so that he'd kiss them and they could take a picture with that. Like he looks just like Barack Obama at the start of this uh, this thing. And Barack gets he gets elected. Obviously, we know our history. He gets elected, and uh, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, Barack Obama gets elected, and the recession's still going on, and. As like the president's uh, like days in office keep going, like popularity starts to slip. Like people are kind of starting to get frustrated. Like our recession is still happening. Like why isn't this going faster? And this guy who looks like Barack, he starts to get like people really mad at him in the street. (laughs) He doesn't have Secret Service agents, and like people know that he's not the real Barack when he's hanging out in the local bar having a beer. Like so they'll say stuff to him or threaten him or say really, really mean things to him. And he says, like, very candidly, like, those were really, really, really hard times because I couldn't help but look like Barack Obama. You know? And that's not a good place to be when the president's approval ratings are slipping in a recession. <laughs> and so they asked him, like, what did you, like, what did you do? And he said that there were times when he would put on his nice suit and he would go into his bathroom he would get a good shave, like a presidential shave. And he would look at himself in the mirror, and he would say, it's going to be okay. And he would say his name, but he would talk as though he were Barack Obama. <laughs> it's going to be okay. <laughs> and he could look at himself, and he could feel connected to kind of the power behind that suit. And I want to leave you all with this, is that when you feel down or you don't know if you're able to persevere, and you say, I need more love. I need more of what's going to get me through this. Go to the place where you can see yourself as you truly are. Go to the place where God shows you who you truly are. And that's someone in Christ. That when God looks at you, He sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of His Son. He sees the truth of His Son. He doesn't see somebody who's a dummy. He doesn't see somebody who's a failure. He sees the real you. And that's someone who is in Jesus. And you need to go to him over and over and over again. Because really, at the end of the day, perseverance is about persevering in love. And love is a person. It's Jesus. So persevere in him. And put him on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us that you would give us your son. Lord, that you would give us the very thing we need, which is to persevere in him. And so, Lord, I pray that if our hearts are cold towards you, God, that you would make us warm because we would know your love. And if we doubt you, Lord, that we would know your truth. And the person who is that truth, your son Jesus. Lord, would you be with us tonight? Would you help us to hope? 
Lord, in your love and your goodness, God, would you help us to persevere in the one who has called us his children. In your son's name we pray. Amen.